Hey guys, what's going on? This is Father Matt. I hope everybody is staying healthy and all is well. Uh, we're getting ready for Holy Week. I know it's going to be a different kind of Holy Week. Just a heads up, I started streaming, uh, live streaming Sunday Mass at 10.45 a.m. on our Facebook page. Uh, so I'll continue that on Sundays. I won't be able to live stream the Triduum for a couple of reasons, but I will Easter Sunday and, and this coming Sunday, which is Palm Sunday. Uh, if you are in Emporia, the, the chapel is available 24-7 via keypad, and I um, also unlock the center on Wednesday evenings at 6 p.m. and Friday later in the morning at 11 a.m. for confessions. Um, so, all right, let's, let's get on uh, with, with our topic today. We're talking about Chapter 7 from Frank Sheed's A Map of Life, which is in Chapter 7 is entitled uh, Truth, the Teaching Church. And it begins with a very short introduction um, two paragraphs all told. He begins by essentially rehashing what we went over in chapter six. Uh, and then in the second paragraph, he gives a basic introduction to the idea of divine revelation. Okay, so God reveals himself to mankind, the, the fullness of God's revelation to us is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ revealed uh, a whole mass of teachings to the apostles who were, as she calls, the first Officials of the church Christ founded. They were the first bishops and Peter was the first pope. The apostles then passed on this teaching when they received, uh, which they received by Christ orally. And some of it was by the inspiration of God written down. Okay. Uh, and that part is what we call the New Testament. All right. So we have apostolic tradition, what was passed down orally uh, and has been preserved in the church to today. And then we also have sacred scripture. Uh, revelation that was recorded under divine inspiration. Let's, let's move on to the next section, which talks about the scriptures and divine inspiration, okay? What does it mean to say a book is divinely inspired? She, de she defines it as follows. God so acted upon the mind and the will of the author that what was written was what God wanted written, okay? When we talk about the Bible being inspired, we are using the word inspiration in a very strict theological sense. In biblical inspiration, the divine assistance is so decisive that God is properly considered to be the author of, of sacred scripture. Let me, let me contrast this with how we use inspiration today. So one of my favorite movies is, is Rocky, this, this boxing movie. Well, you guys have probably heard of Rocky. Anyways, um, I was watching this documentary recently and it talked about how Sylvester Stallone, who wrote and starred in the Rocky movies, he got his inspiration for Rocky from Chuck Wepner, an actual professional fighter who was not that great of a fighter, uh, but he had a bout with Muhammad Ali, and he, surprisingly, he, he went uh, the distance. He went, well, he almost did. He went, uh, he fought all 15 rounds. He was knocked out in the 15th round. But this this story inspired Sylvester Stallone to write Rocky. Now, no one would say Chuck Wepner is the primary author of the movie Rocky. You know, that's Sylvester Stallone. Sylvester Stallone just got the idea, the inspiration from this individual. So when we say scripture is inspired, that's not what we mean. We mean it in a much stronger sense that the divine assistance is so decisive that God is properly considered to be the principal and primary author of sacred scripture. Now, he made use of human writers, human authors, and 
these human authors weren't mere secretaries reporting the word of God like a stenographer in court. Um, you know, the, the divine inspiration doesn't override the individual style of a particular human author, right? We see different books of scripture, so different literary styles and differing levels of literary culture. It is true, though, that the principal author, God, is one and the same, uh, but he makes use of distinct and different instruments, distinct and different human authors, although each author is appropriate for the fact that God intended from all eternity. All right, so the human authors wrote only what God directed them to uh, uh, as he inspired their minds and wills, okay? That is what we mean when we talk about sacred scripture. Now, he ends by dividing the New Testament into three categories. Obviously, I should back up. The Old Testament is obviously also divinely inspired. Uh, he divides the New Testament up into three categories. Um, I mean, it's fine. There are other divisions of the New Testament, but uh, you know, there's the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record the life of Christ. Then he, in the second division, he puts Acts of the Apostles and the various epistles or letters. Acts of the Apostles is written by Luke. Um, many of the letters are written by Paul, a couple by Peter, John, uh, etc., and then he puts Revelation in its own category, okay? Moving on to the section entitled Development of Doctrine, all right? Uh, divine Revelation ends with the death of the last apostle. When the last apostle died, the church had the deposit of faith in its entirety. All that Christ had revealed to the apostles um, had been handed on, taught orally to the faithful, and in particular to their successors, the bishops and co-workers, the priests. Most this uh, mostly this deposit faith was handed on orally. Some of it in writing under divine inspiration. All right, that's essentially a recap. What Sheet is getting at in this section on development of doctrine, uh, he sums up really nicely on page seventy-three in the red in the red paperback. She writes, everything was contained in what Christ had given the apostles to give the church, but though everything was there, it was not all seen explicitly, not all at once. And he goes on to give this analogy, a man enters a dark room and begins by not seeing much, but as his eyes grow accustomed, he first sees the big objects, furniture, uh, then smaller things like pictures and books. Nothing has been added to the room, but there has been an immense growth in the knowledge of the content. Development of doctrine is like that. It's all there from the beginning, but um, our knowledge becomes more particular, more explicit. Uh, and he goes on to say, development of doctrine combines two things, the work of men's minds and the overriding protection of God. God intervenes to prevent the church from teaching error, as we will see in great detail, okay? The next section is titled The Teaching Church, and in it, she basically talks about the magisterium, the teaching authority of the church, and infallibility. Christ formed a college, and by college, I mean an association, not a school. College originally meant an association. So he formed a college of bishops when he called the apostles and he gave them the deposit of the faith. So far, a recap. Well, the bishops as a body, as a college, with the pope, the successor of Peter as their head, are the ones entrusted with with teaching the faith, and God will prevent them from officially teaching error, officially teaching something that is wrong or heresy, um, that is called infallibility, all right? 
Uh, so Sheed makes the following point, I think it's page 75. Therefore, since God will not have his church taught error as to his doctrine, he will not allow the bishops to teach error. This or that bishop or group of bishops may be wrong, uh, may give wrong teaching and theology, but what is taught by the bishops as a body cannot be wrong. So he's talking about infallibility. Let's talk about this. Infallibility basically means what she just said, that God would not allow error to be taught, error in regards to faith or morals uh, to be officially taught. We typically think of infallibility in terms of the Pope and rightfully so. For instance, Code of Canon Law, Canon 749, Section 1, writes uh, or says, by virtue of his office, the Supreme Pontiff, that's the Pope, possesses infallibility in teaching when as the supreme pastor and teacher of all the Christian faithful who strengthens his brothers and sisters in faith, he proclaims by a definitive act that a doctrine of faith or morals is to be held. All right, so what it is saying there is that the Pope, when he teaches ex cathedra from the chair, meaning when he teaches officially as supreme pastor and teacher of all the Christian faithful, he possesses infallibility, meaning God prevents him from teaching error. And historically, no Pope has ever officially taught heresy ever because the Holy Spirit uh, has been given to the church to guide us in all truth, to prevent uh, the deposit of faith from being corrupted by men, all right? Uh, the question then is what precisely counts as official teaching? Well, he needs, to have the, he needs to be speaking about faith and morals. He needs to have the intention of declaring something unchangeably true, and he needs to speak as shepherd and teacher of all the faithful with the full weight of his apostolic authority, not merely as a private theologian. You know, there are lots of times when popes speak that they aren't speaking infallibly. In fact, most of the time they aren't speaking infallibly. You know, there is a book by a Catholic author, Evelyn Waugh, uh, where there's a man, I think his name is, uh, a character in the book, Rex Matram. He's, um, going, he's, he's going through these classes to become Catholic, and the priest questions him about infallibility, and he says something like, uh, well, what if the Pope said it was raining, but it's not? Is, is the Pope infallible in that regards? And, and Rex Matrim says, yeah, I, I would think that it would be like spiritually raining, only we were too sinful to see it. I mean, that's obviously the Pope is not infallible when it comes to the weather, okay? It has to be faith or morals. And, you know, he has to be intending to teach um, something that is to be definitively held by all people for all times, Okay. Um, and he has to be used, invoking the full weight of his apostolic authority. There's a lot more that could be said about papal infallibility. If you have questions, email me. For now, let's move on because she talks about the body of bishops is also possessing infallibility, okay? And he's correct. Canon 749, section two, the college of bishops also possess infallibility in teaching when the bishops gather together in an ecumenical council she makes that point that they can gather together in ecumenical council, exercise the magisterium as teachers and judges of faith and morals who declare for the universal church that a doctrine of faith and morals is to be held definitively or when dispersed throughout the world but preserving the bond of communion among themselves and with the successor of Peter in teaching authentically together with the Roman pontiff matters of faith and morals, they agree that a particular proposition is to be held definitively. Okay. That's the key there, that, it, that, that this teaching that they are putting forward in an ecumenical council, or even the bishops, uh, not an ecumenical council, but the bishops united with the Roman pontiff, the Pope, that this teaching on faith and morals is to be held definitively by all peoples in all places and all times, that's a hallmark of infallibility. 
But let's put this in proper context, right? So Christ bestows upon the College of Bishops and the Pope as successor of Peter and pastor of the Universal Church infallibility. Why? Why does he give it? In order to preserve the deposit of faith as an inheritance for all generation. It is essentially conservative. Infallibility is given to protect the deposit of faith so that it doesn't get corrupted by a later generation. And it's also a necessary guide for true development of doctrine, right? So that the development of doctrine doesn't go off the rails. You need this guarantee of an infallible magisterium. And it's only infallible, right? Because God steps in. The Pope, as she makes the point, the Pope can be a very bad man, but he's, which, which I don't think we've had a bad Pope for a long time. I, I, I think you can go back down through, through history and, and recent popes have, have, by all accounts, seemingly been, been fine. I mean, you might disagree with them on this or that particular prudential decision, but, but she makes the point that, that even if the Pope were a bad man, he's still protected from infallibility. And that's true. And that's really one of the amazing um, uh, reasons for being Catholic and believing Catholicism is true. If you go back to the 11th century, there were some horrible men who were popes. None of them taught heresy, ever. You know, there, there, there haven't been a lot of bad popes. We've had a few, but those few that we have have never taught heresy officially. It's amazing, and it's only possible because God sent the Holy Spirit to guide us in all truth, to preserve this deposit of faith that he revealed to us these truths necessary for salvation for all generations until he comes again. All right, like I always say, if you have questions, email me. No one's emailed me yet, so hopefully um, either you're getting it or, um, well, hopefully you're getting it. But if not, shoot me an email. I'm happy to talk about it. Um, and we'll move on to chapter eight. I'll release that in the next podcast.